Well, amen indeed. We rejoice today because Emmanuel has indeed come to us. And I trust you've had a good time celebrating that over this past week. Have you celebrated the Christmas season? And here we are, the end of another year, the last Sunday of 2019. It's hard to believe, isn't it? The older I get, the faster it goes. Yeah, some of you are laughing because you're older than me. You know what I'm talking about. You young people are going, what? No, it took forever. But it's a pleasure to open God's Word with you this morning, especially on this last Sunday of the year. As we look back on 2019, we look at all that God has done for us. We look forward to 2020, a new decade I don't know if you made any New Year's resolutions. Anyone make New Year's resolutions last year? Did you keep them? I I didn't see any hands up, so maybe no one did. (laughs) Do you even remember what they were? uh, I don't know if you're planning on making New Year's resolutions for this coming year or not, but I, I was thinking about that, actually, and so I did a little bit of research. I mean, not a lot. I just went to the Internet. Um... But according to an article on history.com, so it must be true, right? It has the word history in it um, by a, a, a lady named Sarah Pruitt. She wrote an article there that says that this tradition of making New Year's resolutions dates back about 4,000 years to the time of the Babylonians. Apparently, they used to, um, at the beginning of their new year, which is probably around March or April, um, they would make promises to try and appease the gods and ensure that they would have a, a, you know, a good, a good, good crops that year and, and all that kind of thing. And then the Romans continued that, of course, into uh, when the Romans took over. And they're the ones that actually changed it to January, right? Um, you know, January is named after the god Janus. And, and the reason they think maybe that's why that became the first, of the, uh, the first month of the year is because Janus was a two-faced god. He could look forwards and backwards at the same time. So looking back on the previous year, looking forward to the next year. Of course, eventually this idea of New Year's resolution was redeemed and adapted by Christians in about 1740 when Charles Wesley um, started holding what he called covenant renewal services, uh, also known as watch night services. Remember, who remembers watch night services? Yeah, look at that. They used to be a big tradition here at Calvary. I remember attending them as a teenager down at Center and John Street. We'd get together around 11 o'clock at night on New Year's Eve, and we'd have a service that would take us right through into the new year. They'd usually try and time it just right so that we were praying as a church as we entered into the new year. It was a great tradition. As we look back on all that God had done, as we look forward to the new year, and Now, they say that about 45% of Americans, sorry, these are American statistics. I don't know about Canadians, but 45% of Canadians make New Year's resolutions, and about 8% are successful in achieving them. Sounds about right. I stopped making New Year's resolutions years ago because I was tired of failing. I didn't want to put that kind of pressure on myself anymore. But we do, however, my wife and I and our family, I think we just naturally kind of at this time of year, we spend some time looking back over the past year. We always write a, a Christmas letter that we in, include in our Christmas cards, especially for 
you know, family and friends that have moved away, we kind of lost touch with them. And it kind of sums up what God has done for us over the past year, you know, what our kids did and, and who's doing what in our lives. And it's, a, it's just a great time as we write that letter to kind of look back on how God has blessed us over the year. But then we also, my wife and I, find ourselves thinking about, well, I wonder what, wonder what 2020 is going to hold. And I think it's natural for us, right? As we end a year and we look forward to this new year that's coming, we all start to think about that. You know, what, what's going to happen this year? I know there's one couple in our church, they're getting married next weekend, so they, they know what's going to happen this year. They've got a great new beginning coming up. And so maybe you're thinking about things like that. You've, you've got some things planned for the new year. But what I find myself thinking about most is, where's my focus? You know, I, I don't make specific New Year's resolutions anymore. I, that, was, that was hard. But I do tend to think about, just in general, what do I want to do more of? You know, where, where should my focus, where was my focus this past year? What should my focus be on this next year? And whether we make specific New Year's resolutions or not, I think we all give that some thought at this time of year. Where is our focus as we end one year and head into another year? What are we going to focus on this year? What have we been focusing on? How are we going to finish off this year? Uh, You've got three days, including today, to finish off this year. You've still got time to finish that uh, reading plan. You know, the Bible reading plan, read through the Bible in one year. As long as you didn't skip too many days, you can probably finish it up in the next three days. Finish well this year. How are we going to start the new year? We've got three days left to, to dream and to go, make, set goals and make plans. We all have hopes and wishes for the new year, don't we? Well, I'd like to leave you on this last Sunday of the year with a passage of Scripture that talks about where our focus should be. So we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you can turn there, please, in your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 1. And while this passage doesn't specifically mention New Year's resolutions or New Year's at all, it, is, it does talk about what we should be focusing on as Christians. And this time of year is as good as any to look at what our focus in life should be as we end this year and enter a new year. So 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 3. And I'm reading from the NIV version. It says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. They have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care. 
trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels look or long to look into these things. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Bible and all that is in it. And this passage, this passage specifically today, Lord, as we dig into it, as we look at what you say, Lord, speak to us through your Holy Spirit, Lord, through your living word, that we would leave this place different than we came, knowing you better. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Peter, obviously, was written by Peter. Yes, this is the same Peter who walked with Jesus, one of Jesus' disciples, and then an apostle, the leader of the, the first church. And it was written by him to Christians, to Jews and Gentiles that were scattered throughout Asia Minor. And if, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ here today, these words are for you. Now, if you're here today and God has not yet saved you, if you haven't responded to his call on your life, don't leave. There's something here for you as well. Stay and hear about what this Christianity thing is all about. So as we go back to the beginning of this passage, verse 3 in 1 Peter chapter 1, it, this is actually a prayer, a prayer of praise to God. Now, a lot of the Gospels started this way. A lot of them, uh, they started by just by praising God and, and praying to God and thanking Him for all that He had done. And sometimes we skip over these, but I don't want us to skip over this, especially this first sentence today. Verse 3, the first sentence says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. A common greeting that would have been used in those days and one that we are tempted to skip over, but there's so much in there. Look at, it says, Praise be to God. Speaking about the almighty, all-powerful God of the universe the first person of the Trinity. And not only is he God, but he's Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Acknowledging the relationship between the Father and the Son. Acknowledging that Jesus Christ is not only the Son of God, but is God. See, the Jews in that day knew to claim to be the Son of God was to claim to be God. Peter is reinforcing that notion with people. Praise be to God and to the Lord Jesus because he is God as well. But then there's another little word in there that's very, very important. It says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That little word, our, O-U-R, it references the personal and intimate relationship between the believer and Jesus Christ. It's a remarkable sentence. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then Peter goes on to answer the question, why praise? Why do we praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, look at the rest of verse 13. He says, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
The first reason we rejoice, we praise God, is for his great mercy. God's great mercy, in spite of our sinfulness, in spite of our helplessness, in spite of the fact that we don't deserve it, that's what mercy is, right? Mercy is undeserved favor. That's why we rejoice. We rejoice because of God's great mercy. And notice, it's given to us. We didn't earn it. The believers didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. But God gave it to them. And what did God give them? It says He gave them a new birth. A new birth, a regeneration, new life, salvation, conversion, a new nature, a new family, a new creation. The birth of a child. Think about it. Most of you have probably experienced in one way or another the birth of a newborn child. It's amazing, isn't it? As you hold that little baby in your arms and you think, this is, this is a brand new life entering into the world. And that's what God has given the believer here. A new start, a fresh beginning into life with Christ. But it's not just a new birth. It's a new birth, notice, into a living hope. A living hope of eternal life. Eternal life, and it says, on the basis of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Very, very important. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That living hope is is the hope that every believer has knowing that when this life is over, they will enjoy everlasting, eternal life with Jesus. F.B. Meyer says that this living hope is the link between our present and our future. But there's more. Look at verse 4. So there's a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. So the new birth is not just into hope, but into an inheritance. Now, in the Old Testament, the Jews were very familiar with this term inheritance. In the Old Testament, inheritance referred to land. They looked forward to and waited for the day when they would inherit the promised land of Canaan, and it would be theirs, it would be Israel's, That was their promise and inheritance from God. But in the New Testament, the inheritance for the believer is eternal life. And this inheritance, notice what it says. It can never perish. There's no decay. There's no death. It's indestructible. This inheritance is indestructible. And not only that, it will never spoil. Now, you might think that's the same thing, but not not really. That term spoil means it's free of impurity. It's unstained by evil. Satan can't get in there and mess with it. It's undefilable. And it will never fade. It will last forever. It's unfading. This is a call by Peter for the believers to look past their current troubles, the current troubles of this world, towards an everlasting inheritance. And notice it says it's kept waiting in heaven. 
It's not sitting here on earth where someone can get a hold of it and, and steal it. It's kept in heaven for the believer. And it includes so much. This inheritance includes life, includes righteousness, joy, peace, perfection. Do you know that someday we'll be perfect? More than that, it includes God's presence, Christ's companionship, and even rewards for the believer one day. This is the inheritance that awaits the believer. The believer who, verse 5 says, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. See, Peter shifts his focus a little bit slightly here from talking about inheritance and hope, some things that the believer will have, to talking about the believer themselves. That word who refers to the believer, the one who has put their faith in Christ. And it says, who through faith, through a God-given faith, remember, we don't just have faith on our own, it's given to us by God. Ephesians 2.8 says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of of God. So through faith given by God, it's, it's a, we, the believer has a saving faith. And saving faith produces enduring faith. Saving faith is permanent. It lasts forever. And the believer not only has faith, but they are shielded by God's power, it says. Shielded by God's power, protected Reminds me of Romans chapter 8. I won't read the entire passage. It's a long passage, 31 through 39, but you can look it up. Romans 8, 31 to 39. There's some key verses there. Verse 31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 38, for I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The believer is protected, shielded by God's supreme power. You might remember a few weeks ago, Pastor Rick reminded us to keep our eyes fixed on the size of God, because that is the God who protects us. Those who God has saved, God has declared righteous, and they are protected by the almighty, all-powerful God of the universe. How long? How long is the believer protected? It says, until the coming salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Salvation. Salvation that the believer has now but will be fully realized when Christ returns for his church. It reminds me of, someone once explained it this way. It says, we, we were saved. There was a point in time when we were saved. We are being saved continually as we as we learn to be more like Jesus, we are being saved, and we will be saved. There will be that final realization of our salvation. 
One of the commentators I read, Scott McKnight, put it this way. He said, for Peter, salvation meant the benefits believers have found, do find, and will find because of their faith in the work of Jesus Christ and the blessed Holy Spirit. Salvation. Salvation for the believer. And so Peter sums all these thoughts up in, at the beginning of verse 6. He says, in all this you greatly rejoice. What, in all what do we greatly rejoice? Well, God's mercy, new birth, living hope, an inheritance, faith, saving faith, and salvation. This reality for the believer should result in rejoicing, exuberant jubilation. If you're a believer here today, you should be rejoicing greatly in all that you have and will have in Christ Jesus. But you'll notice as we read through this passage, Peter anticipates that these early believers might have been struggling with this whole rejoicing thing. Verse 6 says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Jacob's saying about those trials this morning. Sometimes life isn't easy, and it wasn't easy for these early Christians, Jews and Gentile, belie- Jew and Gentile believers who were scattered throughout Asia Minor. Some had maybe returned there after their pilgrimage to Jerusalem that we read about in, on, on the day of Pentecost. But others had been forced to leave their homes and had been scattered throughout the world because of persecution, because of what they were facing. We know they were facing persecution because we read in, in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19, all about how they were being persecuted for their faith. And these early believers might have been asking the question, what about trials and suffering? Peter, what about trials and suffering? So Peter takes a few short verses here to remind them of two things and why they can take hope even in the midst of trial and suffering. First of all, it's only for a little while. He says, for a little while. It will not last. You see, any inheritance we could receive here on earth, any inheritance they could receive, whether it was through family or, or the land they were promised, it was all perishable. And their suffering would not last either. Their suffering was just there for a little while. And they were being encouraged to compare that to an eternal inheritance. An eternal inheritance that would never perish, spoil, or fade. So they were reminded that to take heart because their suffering was only for a little while. But he also reminds them that there's a reason for their trials. They're not there for no reason. Look at verse 7. These trials, these trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. There's two things there. Trials test the reality of the believer's faith. 
Think about it. If the believer's faith is never tested, how would you know if it was real? You've heard of the old illustration. I don't, I should have, had, I don't have a chair here. You've heard of the old illustration, right? That I have faith that this chair will hold me if I sit on it. But if I don't actually sit in the chair, do I, do I really believe that it'll hold me up? No, you have to test your faith by actually sitting in the chair. I know it's a simple illustration, but, and that's not really a trial. Sitting down is not a trial. But that's how trials test our faith. They prove our faith to be genuine. Faith is tested much like gold is refined by fire. Peter makes reference to that there. You know how that works, right? You take gold and it's got other stuff in it, some impurities and whatnot, and you heat it up really, really hot. You've probably seen pictures. I've never actually seen it live, probably because I'm not allowed in there when they're doing it. But they get that gold really super, super hot, and gold being the heaviest of metals sinks to the bottom, and all the impurities sit on top so they can be scraped off until whoever is doing that refining is left with pure gold. And that's how faith is tested. It's tested by fire, by extreme heat, by pressure, by trials and by suffering. And at the end, it proves faith to be pure and genuine. But notice, it's not just for that. The result, look at the result of proven genuine faith. Praise, glory, and honor when Jesus returns. When Jesus returns, believers will be vindicated and rewarded for their faith. For a faith that is of much greater worth than gold, because even gold, if you heat it up hot enough, will perish, will be destroyed. But faith, proven, genuine faith is imperishable. Peter continues to talk about this Christian's faith in verse 8. He says, though you have not seen him, speaking about Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. (laughs) These words about Jesus remind us again of faith, of faith in an unseen God. See, those early believers, Peter had seen God. He'd walked with Jesus. But he was writing this letter to people who had never, they'd never seen Jesus. Maybe a few of them might have been around still that had seen Jesus, but most of them had only heard of him. And certainly they had never seen God the Father. And yet they believed. They believed by faith. And they loved by faith. And they were filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. It's a reminder that a Christian's joy is not governed by their circumstances. Their joy didn't depend on whether they were suffering or not. Their joy was just in Jesus. That's all. Their joy, the Christian's joy, was governed by Jesus and Jesus alone. You can't can't take away a Christian's joy any more than you could unseat Christ from the throne, right? 
Christ is seated at the right hand of God right now, interceding on the behalf of all Christians. And in order to remove joy from Christians, you would have to knock Christ off his throne. And that's impossible. No one can do that, and no one can take away the Christian's joy. The Christian's joy is in the salvation they are currently receiving, it says. You see, Christians possess deliverance from the power of sin as a result of their faith in Christ Jesus. That is where the Christian's joy comes from. Peter has made it clear that believers have so much to rejoice about. But he goes on, doesn't he? he doesn't, he's not done yet. He wants to further illustrate exactly how amazing salvation is. So look at verses 10 through 12 with me. He says, concerning this salvation that he's been talking about, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them, to the prophets, that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Peter is essentially saying, how great is this salvation? How great is salvation? The salvation that Christians now have is what the Old Testament prophets wrote about and studied and longed to understand. I don't know if you were here Christmas Eve. If you were Christmas, here Christmas Eve, we saw a video. And it just reminded me, as I was studying for this sermon, we saw a video about Isaiah. Right? It, was, it, was, it was fictional, but it, it, it depicted Isaiah questioning God. God, how can you say that the Messiah will suffer and will die? You see, the prophets, they wrote down what the Holy Spirit told them to write down. They were obedient to God, but they didn't understand it. They didn't always understand. They wrote it down anyways, but they didn't fully understand what they were writing And then, after Jesus, we have the apostles who preached the gospel to the first believers. That's what it says in the passage. It says, you heard because it was preached to you. And believers now, today, even today, have the privilege of preaching this same salvation, preaching the gospel, that prophets, all those big prophets that wrote books and books and books of the Bible. They longed to see it and understand it. But now salvation has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That salvation that the prophets longed to see and understand has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But it's not just the prophets that were amazed by it. Look at what it says at that last verse. Even the angels long to look into those things, these things. That, that expression there could be translated that the angels long, they, they want to stoop and look intently at what was happening. Indicates an intense desire 
for even angels to see how God will fulfill his prophecies. Even the angels didn't get it. Even the, they don't know all the details, just like the prophets didn't know, and yet they eagerly and joyfully watch to see how God's plan will unfold throughout history. You see, the salvation that the believers have is so amazing. Neither the prophets nor the angels experience what the church assumes and enjoys. They enjoyed it then and they enjoy it now. Believers are experiencing what prophets and angels long to see. That's how great salvation is. That's what the word of the God of the, of the Lord says today. And you might be thinking to yourself, so what? How does this change my life? How does this change your life? I mean, we know this is the word of God. We know every word in it is there for a reason. I know it was written almost 2,000 years ago. But it is still relevant relevant and applicable to you today by the power of the Holy Spirit. You are Christians, just like the early Christians. You are Christians living in a sinful, evil world. You face trials and struggles, maybe nothing like what the early Christians faced. But if you think around the world of Christians today, there's persecution and trials and suffering How does this text apply to you? And how will you live differently as you leave this building today, as you head into another new year? Well, I think the overarching theme is quite clear. Verse 3, praise God. Verse 6, rejoice greatly. Verse 8, be filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You are called to praise God and rejoice. Praise God and rejoice. That's how you're supposed to live. That's where it starts. According to the text, you have good reason to praise God and rejoice. And you don't need any more reason than this. You praise God and rejoice for your salvation. Do you understand? as we've worked through this text, how amazing the salvation you have is. Remember the things we listed in that text? You are recipients of God's mercy. You have been given new birth into a new family, a new identity as children of God. You have a living hope, eternal life in Christ. You have a guaranteed inheritance, indestructible, undefilable, unfading, You are recipients of saving faith, a gift from God. You were saved. You are being saved, and you will be saved. And all of this is guaranteed for you because it's kept in heaven. Not only is it kept in heaven, but you, you yourself, as a saved one, are protected and shielded by God's power. So rejoice. 
Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy because God has saved you. But what about reality, Pastor Mark, you might be saying? I mean, it's all good, well and good for us to gather together here this morning with other believers and we got Pastor Jordan and his team leading us in great songs of praise. We're listening to, to Jacob sing about an amazing God and a God who listens to us even in our trials and our struggles. But, and we can, we can amen and, and agree with each other as we gather together. But the reality is, many of you will leave this place today and return to a life of trouble and trials. That's just reality. Family and relationship struggles. Challenges at work. That boss that drives you nuts or that worker that always comes in late. Struggles with temptation and sin. Health issues. Grief. Dealing with the loss of a loved one. Family members who are not walking with the Lord. Money and financial difficulties and stress. Decisions every day that need to be made. And the reality is, we just don't know what to do sometimes. And those are just my struggles. I'm sure you could add to that list. Life is hard. We face trials every day. So what about reality? Well, first of all, as as Jacob's saying in his first song this morning, be real with God. The sermon today about rejoicing and praising God is, is not meant to say, oh, put on a happy face and pretend everything's okay. God knows your heart. God knows what you're going through. So, so don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying pretend it's all okay, because it isn't. We struggle. We face trials. We face difficulties. Life is hard. But we have a God who walks with us through those trials and struggles. So lean hard on Him. And remember what the text says. The trials of this life are for just a little while. Maybe just a little part of your life. Maybe your entire life. But in the... If you keep it in perspective, even if your trials and struggles last your entire life on this earth, they are nothing compared to eternity. They are but a blink of an eye compared to eternity with Jesus. So remember, your trials and your struggles are for just a little while. And, and secondly, take heart in knowing that your trials have a purpose. Your trials have a purpose so that your faith may be proved to be genuine. Trials and struggles will purify your faith. And the result, remember, will be praise, glory, and honor for you when Jesus Christ returns. When Jesus returns, you 
as a believer, will be vindicated and rewarded for your genuine faith that has been tested by those trials. So rejoice. Rejoice in your salvation. You have what the Old Testament prophets and even angels long to see and understand. Salvation. A living hope. An eternal inheritance. Be filled with glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for the gift of your Son that we have just celebrated over the Christmas season, Lord. Jesus, who you sent to live amongst man, but not just to come as a baby in a manger, but, but Lord, to grow up and live a perfect life and then offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins to save us, Lord, although we don't deserve it even a little bit. Thank you, Lord, for our salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord today. And Lord, help us to remember as individuals, as a church, as families, to rejoice in our salvation, Lord, to be joyful, to remember all that you've done for us. Even as we go through hard times, Lord, fill us with joy, not because of our circumstances, but because we are a saved people. Thank you, Lord. Restore unto us the joy of your salvation. I pray you do a great work in each of us, Lord, as we leave this place by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. Work in us. Remind us of the salvation we have in Jesus Christ and all that that entails. And may we rejoice in the knowledge that we have of who we are and whose we are in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. What a great song. Thank you, Jordan, for picking that song. We could have just sung that song and skipped the message. I think it's all in there. Remember that song as you head into this week. But I want to leave you with this. Where will our focus be in 2020? As individuals, as families, as a church. I challenge you. Say we need to begin by rejoicing because of the salvation we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, if you're here today and you're not a believer, you can begin your rejoicing today by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. What a way that would be to start off a new year. Now, if you don't know what that means, if you don't know how to do that, you want to talk to someone about that or anything else for that matter, there'll be pastors here at the front of the church after the service, also in the connections room out in the foyer. Please speak to someone today. And for you who are believers, as the church, our focus in 2020 needs to be on praising God, praising Jesus our Savior, rejoicing in all that He has done for us. He has saved us. I mean, there'll be more specific things we choose 
to focus on, little things here and there. But the overarching focus of everything we do needs to be rooted and governed, governed by our rejoicing, our exuberant joy in Jesus. Not our circumstances, but Jesus. We who have Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior have a personal an everlasting relationship with God, with Almighty God. So rejoice. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have a great day, everyone, and Happy New Year.